Therapy Chat Podcast, Episode 122. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. Welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm back after a little break, really um, settling into the new year and trying to bring you some fun, different things, which is what we're going to do today. I had the idea to bring you questions from listeners. I thought that maybe I would have one episode where listeners asked questions and I would answer the questions. But when listeners started asking questions, what I realized is that the questions were so much more in depth than to be able to be played on only one episode. So this week, we are going to talk about a question that our caller Elizabeth had about episode 107, when I interviewed Tamara Hill and the Title of that episode is Abusive Relationship Dynamics and Trauma Bonding. Tamara and I were talking in that interview, and she was initially going to talk to us about trauma bonding. But what it kind of evolved into is a discussion about some of the dynamics of abusive relationships. And Elizabeth, our caller, who you'll be hearing from in a moment, had a question for more detail about that because in the interview with Tamara, we talked about it as two people who have plenty of experience in working with clients who've been in abusive relationships and maybe some firsthand knowledge. I did disclose some firsthand knowledge that I had of witnessing abusive relationships and being in an unhealthy relationship, which almost turned abusive. So... Elizabeth had some questions that many of you listeners may have when you heard that episode. And so first, I'm going to play for you the segment of the interview with Tamara that Elizabeth was asking about. And then I'm going to play for you Elizabeth's question. Then I'm going to talk about that a little bit more. So first, I'm just going to play for you a part where Tamara tells us who she is. And then we'll go into the way that the conversation went that had Elizabeth wondering. Tamara, thanks so much for being on Therapy Chat today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Thank you. You're welcome. So let's just start off with you talking a little bit more about yourself and your practice. Yeah, sure. So um, I'm currently in Pennsylvania and I'm working with children and adolescents, as well as families and parents. And right now I'm in two group private practices, which are awesome. Um, One is very trauma focused for parents and the other practice is very trauma focused for kids and teens. So right now I'm just dealing with a lot of kids, primarily teenagers who are dealing with traumatic situations. So I, I think that I think the main thing that I'm noticing right now in my practice is domestic violence situations. Mm -hmm. So 
Yeah, situations where we have um, parents who are very verbally and physically abusive toward each other and the kid or the teen is sitting in the background and they're watching this traumatic car crash because it really is. It's like two different people are just they're not getting along. What happens in the process of domestic violence is you have somebody who's the dominant partner. They're being very emotionally or psychologically and physically abusive, but there are times when they are very loving and very charming, and that kind of cements that bond between the two even more, and it kind of it kind of gets that other spouse stuck in limbo between, you know, you're this person who's abusing me and traumatizing me, and yet I love this other side of you that's so charming. So that's, that's how that process gets started, and I see it most in domestic violence cases. Okay, so I'm really glad you brought that up. I want to talk about a couple little points about that. Because for one thing, I think that people who are in abusive relationships don't necessarily recognize their relationships as being domestic violence or intimate partner violence. You know, it's like we have this picture of what that is. And then the way it shows up in people's lives, they don't think it's the same. I very much agree. Yeah. So in fact, I was watching. Um, have you seen that show on HBO, Big Little Lies? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I have. I was watching that and I last night, I mean, I've seen the whole series and I actually think that it's a kind of an accurate portrayal of the way abusive relationships can be in the Nicole Kidman, you know, marriage that the husband can be very loving, very sweet. And he can also be violent, possessive, territorial, controlling. And I think when we understand about the dynamics of domestic violence and abusive relationships as outsiders, as professionals, it's easy for us to say, oh, clearly that's an abusive relationship. But with the, and you know, if you know about the dynamics, like I do, and it sounds like you do, the, um, It's like, you know, what's going to happen, you know, the progression, it starts off with, you know, a very exciting courtship that's usually very short and quick to become a deeply committed relationship. And then, you know, and with the, the male partner often being described as being a perfect gentleman and, you know, the, the dream come true kind of, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. fantasy partner. Yeah, it's that relation. And I'm glad you brought that up, Laura, because that's that that relationship. I just want to throw this in there with you. It's that relationship that makes you feel like you're, you're being swept off your feet, right? Mm-hmm. You Put know, on a pedestal. Yeah, it's that every girl's dream kind of a relationship. Right. And it's kind of like that fairy tale idea. So the person puts you on a pedestal and you're like, wow, nobody has ever liked me this much, you know, and it's like, wow, he is really, you know, and I'm just stereotyping with a male female relationship, but that's not necessarily the only dynamic where this could happen, of course. But, but for people who know the dynamics, you know, that the first time there's violence, you know, the, the victimized partner is going to be completely caught by surprise and think that this is totally out of character. So, you know, right now, I'm kind of glad you brought that up, Laura, because right now, you know, I'm just I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about a a perfect example, um, which would be of, you know, somebody who starts in a relationship that's just 
beautiful starting out, right? And it might be great for the first three years and then it changes. Um, And I see that a lot in marriages. I see the dating relationship go well, but right after the marriage, right after the wedding, actually, I'm seeing a lot of, of, you know, traumatic bonding happening. You have the abuse, you have the, you know, I've, I've secured this relationship. I finally got you and the person changes. Of course, you know, you and I know, Laura, that this is not every relationship, but I'm sure you and I both have heard of, of relationships where things start out well, the marriage happens, the kids happen, and then something goes wrong with the marriage. Absolutely. And we know that there are certain factors that um, increase risk of domestic violence beginning to occur, like if there is a, you know, a change in the partner's situation, like, for example, they have a situation that brings more stress to their life, like losing a job or the the female partner becomes pregnant or, you know, even there can be that somewhat implicit sense that they're not as close as they were. Yes. You know, and that could be enough to trigger the dominant partner to become concerned about losing the relationship. And that's when they start to act out and, and demonstrate violence or extremely controlling behavior. Mm, Absolutely. So I think it's really important, you know, just to describe this so that people who are listening can understand that professionals know the way it goes and and realize that when the victimized partner thinks this was just a one-time thing, he'll never hurt me again, we know that that's usually not the case. And so it's like we can see what's going to happen. But for the person who's in the relationship, the way they see it is 99% of the time this person is like the perfect partner and just 1% of the time they they act out of character. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that happens in a lot of situations because, of course, you're taken off guard. You don't know what's going on. But I think, and you brought something up for me, Laura, I was just thinking earlier, that there's the, the power differential in the relationship. I think in a, in a relationship that includes the traumatic bonding, you've got a power differential. So you've got Nine times out of 10, you've got the the female who's financially dependent upon the male or emotionally dependent upon the male. And somehow, even though the relationship may have started out well, somehow later in the relationship, the man takes full control because that woman's dependence upon him empowers him in some way. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting that you said that because I've definitely seen many relationships where from the outside, the woman is a very empowered very possibly very successful in her career and, you know, confident, assertive, intelligent, independent type of person. But within the relationship dynamic, they're more emotionally dependent on the other partner. And so people don't see that from the outside. So they, they would never guess that that woman could be a victim of domestic violence. And then the woman has such a strong identity and being strong and independent and empowered that it prevents them from wanting to let anyone know that there's a big problem they're dealing with. And they feel very ashamed at not being able to do whatever. And that's the other thing is that there's that dynamic of, Oh, like, I don't know what brought this on. You know, I can actually, (laughs) yes. (laughs) As we talk about this, I'm thinking about, when I was younger, a relationship I had where we, you know, it kind of started out just like I described with this perfect gentleman put me on a pedestal and it was like, 
unbelievable. But then one day, literally out of the blue, he just started screaming at me, cursing at me and calling names like just for no reason. Yeah. And if I hadn't known, I wasn't a mental health professional then, but if I hadn't known about the dynamics of domestic violence because of just things I had seen and some other family relationships, I, I wouldn't have realized. I definitely would have thought, what did I do? What, what happened? Like, how did I make him, yes. you know, so upset? Absolutely. You internalize that, right? You start right. to internalize that as I've done something wrong. Maybe I'm not pretty enough, smart enough, strong enough, you know? And I think I'm glad you brought that up, Laura, because this is the process. This is typically what happens to a, a female in a, an abusive relationship. And in order to cope, it sounds like you were strong enough to get out of that. But in order to cope for most women, they begin to over identify with a person and of course, I can go down a whole list of things that, that they begin to do, Laura, but, but one is over-identify with them. So just explain a little bit more about what that means, over-identify with them. Yeah, absolutely. So what the woman does is, you know, because she's in a state of confusion, she doesn't know what to think. She thinks it's her fault, but she's not, you know, 100% sure. She starts to kind of make excuses for the behavior and over-identify. So what I mean by that is, you know, looking back at some things that may have triggered her made her snap, made her angry, made her emotionally distraught. And she begins to almost, I can't think of the word I'm trying to reach for. It almost becomes a fusion of, of identities with, with she and her spouse. Do you know what I mean by that? Mm -hmm. Like she, you know, she tries to find some way to reconnect them. And so that's, you know, her, her process of trying to over-identify, you know, kind of making excuses, but normalizing it at the same time. Yeah. And kind of thinking it must be something she did or somehow she must have caused this, which makes her try to make it better. And, right. you know, and he's happy to say, yeah, you made me behave this way. And, you know, so, you know, when you said I was strong enough to get out of that relationship, I definitely was just I think even though I was so much caught by surprise, yeah, I still saw I was like, oh, no, this is like not okay. I'm getting like, I got to get out of this. I know where this is going. Like, but it was just because I had had the experience of hearing about that before and that that's not okay. And I think, you know, let's say if in my own family, when I was growing up, if my parents had treated each other that way, I probably wouldn't have blinked an eye. Sure. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm glad you said that. No, I was just thinking, I think that's I think that's how the abuse kind of gets started and it continues. You know what I mean? Like there's just this process of denial in a sense. Yeah. And you don't see, and, and really I think what we ignore in um, understanding why people don't leave abusive relationships sooner, because, you know, that's the classic question. Why didn't she just leave? We ignore the fact that it's traumatic to be when you feel like you really love someone and they love you and all of a sudden they change and act like a completely different person and they're being verbally or physically abusive to you. That's traumatic. Right. Yes, it is. And I, and I think there's also a, a emotional and psychological process that the person has to go through. And it's going to be hard to break that relationship until they they begin to process everything. It's almost like 
the beginning stages of the abuse, they're too shocked and too numb at times to make decisions. So I, I hate to say this, but in most relationships, everything needs to play out until that person gets tired and says, I've got to go. Mm hmm. Yeah. You know, and, and when you mentioned strength, that makes me want to point out that it takes an immense amount of strength to stay in an abusive relationship. It's actually much more difficult than, you know, because when you escape from that relationship, it's over. But when you, of course, you know, there can be it can be hard to get out of it even when you're trying to end it. But if you yeah. don't leave the relationship, if you have if you're financially dependent or you have kids or you're pregnant and you just you have nowhere else to live and it's just not that simple, it takes incredible strength to be able to keep going I with agree. the abuse that people experience. I agree, Lauren, especially when you have kids too. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, sometimes the victimized partner thinks that they need to stay in their relationship to protect the kids in some way that the kids will be harmed either right. emotionally or physically if they leave the relationship. Therapist, we've all had that moment. You wake up in the middle of the night. Oh my gosh, did I do my notes? Well, you don't have to worry about that anymore when you use therapy notes. Therapy notes makes it easy to write your notes, get them done quickly, but thoroughly. My group practice has used therapy notes for six years and everyone always finds it easy to use. But the best thing is if you do need help, you can call their customer service number and a person answers the phone. And anytime I've ever had to use it, which is maybe three times in the past six years, my issue has been resolved easily with a cheerful demeanor in 15 minutes or less. So I highly recommend Therapy Notes. And don't forget, go to therapynotes.com and use promo code chat to get two free months. Okay, so as you heard there, what we were talking about is how in abusive relationships, the partner who's being victimized, and as I said in that episode, the gender doesn't necessarily matter. It's not always heterosexual relationships that this happens in. It can happen in a relationship with any gender combination. And the abusive partner may be any gender and the victimized partner may be any gender. Oftentimes people think that men cannot be victims of domestic violence, but that is definitely not true. Both in same-sex relationships where both partners are male and in heterosexual relationships where one partner is male, women can be perpetrators. And in same-sex relationships where both partners are female, there can be a partner who is more dominant in the relationship who can be abusive towards the other partner and victimize them. And any other combinations that you can think of, the dynamic is about power and control. It's really not about gender. So that's an aside, but I just want to be sure that Everyone who's listening knows that if they feel like their experience might fit into this and the genders that have been explained or described by me or by myself and Tamara when we were talking 
don't match, your experience doesn't mean that you may not be in an abusive relationship. And I don't want anyone to feel excluded or unheard in the fact that anyone can be a victim of intimate partner or domestic violence and abusive relationships. So now I want to go ahead and play for you Elizabeth's question so you can hear what her thoughts were and what her questions were about this episode. And then we'll go from there. Hi, Laura. My name's Elizabeth and I'm located in Rockville, Maryland, and I'm a fan of your therapy chat podcast. I would like to submit a question. And my question is about podcast episode number 107 about abusive relationship dynamics and traumatic bonding, which featured Tamara Hill. And what I wanted to ask is maybe you could perhaps elaborate a little bit more about the different stages in the cycles of abuse. During the conversation with Tamara, you guys touched on it a little bit. And I would also like to ask if maybe you could elaborate about characteristics of individuals who tend to be attracted to that type of relationship over and over again, uh, whether it's the dominant partner or the one who's overpowered. But I was just curious, you know, that episode got me thinking about a lot of things that I think folks can relate to and just wanted more information for my own personal psychoeducation, if you will. So thanks again. Um, I, I look forward to listening to the final podcast when it's released. So I'm going to talk about the characteristics of abusive relationships and give you some information to expand upon what was said in that episode number 107, based on Elizabeth's question and probably what many of you may be wondering. In general, abusive relationships often have some factors in common. They're not all the same, but one common dynamic is that There can be a very short period of courtship before an intensely committed relationship is started. For example, dating for a few months and then or less and moving in together or getting married. People often describe being swept off their feet. It's a dream come true relationship. Feels like a fairy tale. It's just like what we see in the movies all of those stories where they live happily ever after. Of course, as I've said to many clients in fairy tales, which end with the couple getting together and living happily ever after, that's just the beginning of the story of that relationship. That's not how it ends. Happily ever after means, you know, all the ups and downs of navigating what a relationship is. It's not always happily and it's not always ever after. But if we are realistic about relationships, how they should be, there's not a Prince Charming and you're a damsel in distress up in a tower and he comes and saves you from a dragon and then he takes care of you. You're a queen. He puts you on a pedestal. You make babies and all is wonderful and blissful forever. When you look at fairy tales, you know, how much do you even see about Prince Charming as a person? He's usually pretty quiet, pretty, you know, stoic. He's just a hero and he comes and rescues and that's it. You jump on the horse or into the carriage and 
go. But that's not how real relationships are. That's not respectful to either partner being more complex. And of course, I'm over oversimplifying, but, you know, people who are in abusive relationships sometimes miss red flags about um, all of the focus being on one partner, the other partner seemingly not having any needs, just wanting to take care. That's a red flag for a relationship. It doesn't mean it's going to be an abusive one, but is it one that's equal and based on mutual respect and care and concern for the reality that each partner has their own feelings, their own wants and needs? No, it really isn't. So I mentioned fairy tales and I think of two things. If you've ever seen any fairy tale, you're familiar with the way those stories go. But if you've ever watched Shrek, Shrek is more of a realistic story. And and it kind of puts fairy tales on their heads, especially the first Shrek. So if you look at how the relationship is between Shrek and Fiona, that's more like what a healthy relationship actually looks like. They talk about things. They both have a voice. Neither one is making all the decisions or neither of neither partner's feelings are the only feelings that matter in the relationship. So to talk about the dynamics of abusive relationships, no two relationships are the same, but there are some patterns that are common in abusive relationships that can help us identify that this is not a healthy relationship. And the information I'm sharing now comes from the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence website. So I'm going to summarize some of the information that's here. And you can go to the website where there's a wealth of information. It's ncadv.org slash dynamics dash of dash abuse. And I will put a link to that in the show notes so that you can easily access that. Just bear in mind that if you suspect that you might be in an abusive relationship, and I don't want to sound paranoid, but this is real, abusers can monitor what you do. And if they find out that you're looking at a website about domestic violence, they may become concerned that they're about to lose you, which increases your danger. So if you do go to that website, be aware that there's a button on the website that you can quickly exit. And also you can go to a public library and use their website. You can use the private function on your phone to search for information that can't be tracked. However, I do not know if there are ways to track what you do on your phone when it's on private. And when I say I don't know, there are an incredible number of things that people will do when they're terrified of losing their relationship or they are obsessed with maintaining control in their relationship. And I'm going to give you another resource, which I'm looking up right now. So if you heard me tap it on my computer, the National Network to End Domestic Violence, NNEDV.org, is, has done some incredible work in how technology can be used as a tool of abuse. So I know I'm going a little bit off topic, but it's pretty relevant. So go to 
techsafety.org slash resources. I heard a presentation from them about eight years ago that blew my mind about the things that can be done to maintain control in an abusive relationship using technology to abuse. If you didn't know these things exist, you would never dream them up. But abusers who are really determined to maintain control are pretty adept at finding these things. It's it's almost like there's a, a manual somewhere that they share. So things that can be done, I'll just give you like a little brief description, but some of the things that can be done are like using an app to call the victim from her mother's phone number and disguise the voice to even somehow play the mother's voice, probably some kind of recording involved in that. I don't know how they do that. But so basically, maybe the person is trying to avoid this abusive partner or former partner, but they answer the phone because it's their mother, they think. And then it's really the abuser. And, you know, doesn't that make the victim feel like they're going crazy or that they can't be safe no matter what they do? And there are, of course, GPS tracking devices. We've all heard about this where it can be put on your car or, you know, in your purse or something so that they know everywhere you go. And then stalkers use that to make you feel like nowhere is safe and that they know everything you do. And it really has a huge psychological impact, even though it may sound kind of like something from TV or something, but it's... It's very real. And the people over at the National Network to End Domestic Violence have done some very important work to help combat this um, for survivors to know what can be, you know, you, if you know it's there, then just knowledge is power. That just gives you information that helps you avoid being abused in that way and what you can do about those things. There are a lot of things that, that people can do. So, all right, going back to the dynamics of abusive relationships, just to be very clear, anyone can be a victim of domestic violence from any socioeconomic status, any age, any background, any community, any education level, any culture, ethnicity, religion, level of ability, gender identity, sexual identity, anyone can be a victim of domestic violence and it is never the victim's fault. It's not something that they want. And there's a common myth that people who claim to be victims of domestic violence are often just as abusive as the abusive partner. And that's not true. That's a myth. Abusive relationships are characterized by one partner using abuse for power and control. It's not equal, even if the victim initiates the violence. For example, well-publicized domestic violence situations that we've heard about where perhaps the woman slapped the man and then the man beats the woman unconscious. Uh, the woman could not beat the man unconscious in those situations. I'm thinking if the, the male partner is a football player or even, you know, it, men have different muscle structure than women. And there's an inherent power differential there. 
Now, of course, there are situations where the woman may be very muscular and the man may be very slight or in many relationships where um, both partners are male, both partners are female and any other combination like that, it may be different. But, you know, when when Ray Rice punched his partner in the elevator and I believe the I don't want to get my facts wrong about this, but from what I recall, I think in the video, she may have done something physical to him first and he literally punched her and knocked her out. Then he dragged her out of the elevator. That is not equal violence. And there are reasons why partners sometimes do the first physical action. And it's part of the dynamic that they may be doing that in a way to attempt to feel in control. But whether they're fighting back, initiating violence to try to defuse a situation, there's always one partner who is the primary constant source of power, control, and abuse in an abusive relationship. Okay, so some statistics. Nearly 3 in 10 women and 1 in 10 men have experienced rape, physical violence, or stalking by an intimate partner or a former partner and have been impacted in at least one way related to experience the, experiencing these or other forms of violent behavior in the relationship. Impacts would include feeling fearful, concern for safety, PTSD, need for health care, injury crisis support, need for housing services, need for victim advocacy, legal services, missing work or school, for example. So physical and sexual assaults or threats to commit them are the most apparent forms of domestic violence. Those are the ones that we all recognize, but there are other types of abusive behaviors which are common in abusive relationships that are characterized by domestic violence, which I'll call abusive relationships. So it can be, it's kind of a continuum that can be physical violence, sexual violence, intimidation, emotional abuse, isolation, gaslighting, using children, using economic abuse, coercion and threats, stalking, all of those can be some of the behaviors that are present in abusive relationships. And I mentioned the HBO series, Big Little Lies. The series was great. It's based on a book by Leanne Moriarty, which I haven't read. I've heard it's good. One of the relationships on that show, spoiler alert, you may not want to listen to this if you haven't seen it, but the relationship with Nicole Kidman as the wife and the husband is Alexander Skarsgård. Everyone thinks they're just the perfect couple. She's beautiful. He's handsome. They're rich. They live in a beautiful home in Monterey. They have two beautiful children who look perfect on the outside. Of course, nobody's perfect. None of anything is perfect ever. And this relationship isn't perfect either. I don't know what he does. I think he has some kind of job in finance. She is a lawyer, but she hasn't been practicing law. She gave up her legal practice when she had her children. She has twin boys who are first grade age, so six or seven years old. And all of their friends comment on what a perfect husband he is. He's so devoted to her, sweet, loving, 
treats her like a princess. He is, you know, expressive with his emotion. But what's really going on in their relationship is that he is possessive, jealous, suspicious, territorial, paranoid. He often thinks that she's spending more time with other people than him, excluding him from her relationship with the children. He gets angry when she doesn't want to spend all of her time with him when he returns from business trips or when she makes other plans, even though she may not have known when he was traveling and when he was returning. He accuses her of lying or sneaking around when she isn't. He he doesn't really express how he feels. He will, out of the blue, lash out at her and make accusations accuse her of lying, and then he will become violent. He doesn't want her to resume any practice of law. And it seems like the more she tries to assert any independence and autonomy from him, as his behavior becomes increasingly controlling, he gets triggered more and more. And his incidences of violence towards her increase. And sometimes she hits him and then they have, I don't know how it's portrayed in the book and I'm not 100% certain how it was intended to be portrayed in the series on HBO, but the sex they have does not seem to me that it is completely consensual. It's like I don't know. It just seems like some kind of response to what's happening. And the way she talks about it afterwards, she describes it in a way that she knows something isn't right about it for her. But that's not really clear. Not explicit. The therapist clearly, they go to couples counseling and the therapist is very clear She's very clear with the character Celeste that this relationship is unsafe for herself and her children. She tells her, you need to start saving some money, find a place to live. The other thing is that the children are impacted. You see that the children start acting out and the wife Celeste believes that they don't really know what's going on, but they do. Some of the things that happen, they hear, and it shows in the behavior that they start to exhibit. Witnessing domestic violence is a deeply traumatic event for children. And even something they witness at the age of one, they may not have the words to describe, but they can remember. Not everyone does, but I have seen children and adults who can describe something that happened when they were that young, that their mother may not have ever even known that they were aware of what was happening. And it's not like the children are saying, oh, this is domestic violence. But what's happening is that they feel terrified And they have a trauma response. And that's what carries on through adulthood. So I want to be very clear that 
domestic violence is traumatic for the victim and witnessing domestic violence is traumatic for children. Victims in abusive relationships may feel that they want the abuse to end, but they don't want the relationship to end. And really, if you think about it, that makes sense. They feel isolated. They may feel depressed, helpless, unaware of the services that are available to help, embarrassed about their situation. They may fear judgment or being stigmatized if they reveal what's happening. They may deny or minimize the abuse or make excuses for the abuser. They may still love the abuser. They may distance themselves from family or friends. They may be impulsive or aggressive, feel financially dependent on the abuser. They may feel guilt related to their relationship, shame, anxiety. They may have suicidal thoughts. They may abuse substances. They may be hopeful that their abuser will change or stop the abuse. They may have religious, cultural, or other beliefs that reinforce staying in the relationship. They may have no support from friends or family. They may fear cultural, community, or societal backlash that interferes with them being able to escape or accept support. They may feel like they have nowhere to go or no ability to get away. They may fear they won't be able to support themselves after leaving the abuser. They may fear for the safety of themselves and their children if they leave, and that's a very real concern. They may have pets or other animals they don't want to leave. They may be mistrustful of local law enforcement, courts, or other systems if the abuse comes out. And they may have had previous unsupportive experiences with friends, family, employers, law enforcement, courts, CPS, and believe they won't get help if they leave or fear retribution if they do. They may fear that the abuser will get custody of the child. So it's very important to understand that for someone who's in an abusive relationship, as much as other people may encourage them to leave and may even become unsupportive and withdraw from them if they won't leave, it is always up to that survivor of domestic violence to leave when they're ready. And the best thing you can do as a supportive person is give them resources like the National Domestic Violence Hotline, help them find out about the resources available in your community. Every community has some kind of domestic violence program that offers safe shelter, 24-hour hotline. Oftentimes there's free counseling available. It may take years for someone to develop a safety plan and get their affairs in order to be able to leave. And some people don't leave, but it's their choice. And one thing I disagree with in the portrayal of Big Little Lies is the way the therapist is saying, you have to get out. You need to find a place. I do agree with a therapist being very honest about the risk and helping the client understand that this is an abusive relationship, but it's up to that person to know when the right time is to leave and when someone else tries to pressure that person, it may not really feel supportive. The effects of domestic violence are many. I don't know if you know this, but according to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, one in three women and one in four men have been victims of some form of physical violence by an intimate partner within their lifetime. 
One in seven women and one in 18 men have been stalked by an intimate partner during their lifetime to the point in which they felt very fearful or believed that they or someone close to them would be harmed or killed. Intimate partner violence accounts for 15% of all violent crime. 15% of all violent crime in this country. 72% of all murder-suicides involve an intimate partner. And 94% of the victims of these murder-suicides are female. One in 15 children are exposed to intimate partner violence each year, and 90% of these children are eyewitnesses to the violence. The physical and mental impact of domestic violence includes increased risk of contracting HIV or other sexually transmitted infections due to forced intercourse or prolonged exposure to stress. Physical, mental, and sexual and reproductive health effects have been linked with intimate partner violence, including adolescent pregnancy, unintended pregnancy in general, miscarriage, stillbirth, intrauterine hemorrhage, nutritional deficiency, abdominal pain and other gastrointestinal problems, neurological disorders, chronic pain, disability, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder, as well as diseases like hypertension, cancer, and cardiovascular diseases. And the economic impact is great. Victims of intimate partner violence lose a total of 8 million days of paid work per year. The cost of intimate partner violence exceeds $8.3 billion per year to our economy. Between 21 to 60% of victims of intimate partner violence lose their jobs because of reasons stemming from the abuse. And between 2003 and 2008, 142 women were murdered in their workplace by their abuser. 78% of women killed in the workplace during that five-year period were murdered by their abuser. And when we talk about mass shootings, oftentimes, most of the time, you can trace back a connection when someone goes into a place and starts shooting people. There is often a history of domestic violence in that shooter's romantic relationships. Oftentimes, the person who goes and shoots a bunch of strangers first kills their family, their wife or mother or other family members. And according to a report from the United States Department of Justice, domestic violence calls are among the most dangerous types of calls for police officers to respond to because they're the most likely to result in an officer fatality. So I'm going to give you the National Domestic Violence Hotline number. It's 1-800-799-7233. That's 1-800-799-SAFE. 1-800-799-7233. If you call that National Domestic Violence Hotline number, you'll be connected with the domestic violence hotline in your community. And there are trained people responding to that number who can help you develop a safety plan, help you find out about the resources in your area. And even if you're thinking, could my relationship be abusive? I wonder. You can call there and they can help you to determine if what you think is a red flag is a common dynamic of an abusive relationship. So thanks for listening to this episode. That's all I'm going to say for today about Elizabeth's question. But I'm very grateful to Elizabeth for 
calling in and we are going to be talking about this more in upcoming episodes. I'm going to talk about how to identify if your relationship is unhealthy or abusive, if you might be an abuser and what you can do if you are. And if you are in an abusive relationship as the victim, what some of your options are. And we're also going to talk about the specific issues of youth and young adults in dating relationships with partner violence and LGBTQ relationships as well. So thanks again for listening. Until next time, I will talk to you later. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com.